Good afternoon and welcome to the 77th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today we have the fifth of the Academy of Natural Sciences and COVID Calls collaborative discussions. My guests today are Julian Siggers, president of the Penn Museum and Scott Cooper, CEO of the Academy of Natural Sciences. You can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for guests and future topics. As of today, June 30th, 2020, there are 10,360,882 confirmed cases globally of COVID-19, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 10,195,680 cases yesterday. Of those, 2,606,211 are in the United States. That's up from 2,562,921 Yesterday, there are now a total of 126,493 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States, up from 125,927 reported yesterday. As a way to bring humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for COVID-19 sufferers every day, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is James Weaver, who helped bring music to the Smithsonian Museums, died after contracting COVID-19. This is written by Alex Ellerbeck and appeared May 18th in the Washington Post. James Weaver saw his first harpsichord during a high school field trip from his hometown of Danville, Illinois, to the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History in Washington. With no guards in sight, he later told friends he snuck over and pushed down a key, but no sound came out of the unrestored antique stringed keyboard instrument. Years later, when he became a music curator at the Smithsonian in 1966, Weaver made the instruments in the museums sing. During his first, during his four decades at what is now the National Museum of American History and the Smithsonian Institution's Performing Arts Department, he brought in musicians, storytellers, and dancers and used the museum's collection of more than 5,000 instruments to recreate historical music. People would come to the American History Museum and there were two or three things they wanted to see. The flag, the first lady's gowns, and Dorothy's slippers, said Howard Bass, a lute player who worked with Weaver at the Museum of American History. Weaver also pushed his colleagues to make a museum a living place full of sound and movement. He was 82 when he died of COVID-19 in April after contracting the coronavirus. Weaver brought together nine musicians in 1976 to create the Chamber Music Society, an ensemble in residence at the museum. The group toured the country and brought to life meticulously constructed performances on instruments that dated to the early 1600s. At that time, the work of Johann Sebastian Bach were still mostly played on piano, an instrument the composer would have never seen. Visiting interns at the museum were once shocked to see curators taking historical pieces out of their cases and playing them. While Weaver's expertise was in Baroque and early classical music, his interests were wide-ranging. Working with performing arts at the Smithsonian and later leading the Division on Music and Culture at the Museum at the Museum of American History, he helped bring American musical theater, jazz, hip-hop, folk music, and early electric guitars into the museum. He was also involved in the community as an organist and choir master for several DC and Maryland churches. He had one foot in the classical camp and one foot in the popular camp, said Kenneth Slowick the curator of the musical instrument collection at the Museum of American History. His wide-ranging interests, which stood out even in a museum full of curious intellectuals, gave Weaver an ability to talk to anyone. Slowick describes him as an omnivorous extrovert who was a great schmoozer in the good sense of the term. He kept a tuxedo ready to go in case of any last-minute invites. He was a beloved boss, the type who gave his colleagues wide space to pursue their ideas, but he also wasn't afraid to dive into the details of a project to help to push it forward. He once accompanied Marvette Perez, the late curator of Latino history at the Museum de Puerto Rico, to pick up and prepare a collection of artifacts for a project on Latino history. 
No was not really part of Jim's vocabulary. The question was how, said Slowick. After more than five decades in the Washington area, Weaver moved with his husband Samuel Baker to Rochester, New York last year. It was there that he caught the coronavirus in April. After a visit to the doctor, he was admitted to the hospital where his condition deteriorated rapidly. He died April 16th. One of the hardest things, according to close friends, is that because of social distancing restrictions, they cannot get together to commemorate his life with the music that he so loved. Okay, I'd like to turn to our discussion today and welcome my guests. I want to introduce them. Scott Cooper is the president and CEO of the Academy of Natural Sciences, an international museum professional and heritage preservation scholar. Cooper has spent more than two decades protecting, transforming, and promoting cultural science and institutions around the world. Cooper studied engineering at the University of Manchester and architectural conservation at Edinburgh College of Art. He was awarded a UNESCO scholarship to study stone conservation in Venice and later returned to Edinburgh to complete his doctoral research on Scottish history. Cooper joined the Academy after four years as vice president of collections, knowledge, and engagement at the Royal British Columbia Museum in Victoria, Canada. There he devised and implemented innovative learning, visitor experience, exhibitions, research, and collection strategies, which together helped transform the institution into Canada's most popular museum. My second guest, Julian Siggers, joined the Penn Museum as Williams Director in 2012. He came to Philadelphia from the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, Canada, where he was Vice President of Programs, Education, and Content Communication. He's also served as director of the Institute for Contemporary Culture at the Royal Ontario Museum and as head of narrative and broadcast development at the United Kingdom's National Museum of Science and Industry in London. Dr. Siggers was an archaeology columnist and on-air television host for seven years with the Discovery Channel Canada. He taught prehistoric archaeology at the University of Toronto, where he earned his PhD with a specialization in Near Eastern prehistoric archaeology. In September of this year, Dr. Siggers will end his tenure at the Penn Museum when he will become president and CEO of the Field Museum in Chicago. Julian and Scott, thanks for making time to come on COVID Calls today. Pleasure. So I'd like to start the way I've started each of these, and that's um, to ask you where you're calling from and what the COVID-19 situation is there, and if you... Also, would like to comment on what um, the social protest situation may be where you're calling from. We'd probably like to hear about that as well. So, Scott, let me start with you. Um, well, I, I'm based in Leafy Chestnut Hill suburb, northwestern suburb of Philadelphia. We are uh, we have just about 300 yards in that direction. Um, a hospital, small uh, provincial hospital run by Tower Health, which um, is also part of the Drexel ecosystem. Coincidentally, until very recently, um, that institution was incredibly stressed with with, with COVID cases. So, um, whilst it was never overwhelmed, it was certainly pretty close uh, to. Um, I mean, it was never a breaking point, but it was it was very stressed by the sheer volume of intake for a very long period of time. It's been a relief to all involved that uh, that has eased reasonably recently. Um, I think it comes as no comfort to anybody, uh, the prospect of, of that ramping up once more. So from our little world here and the hospital being the centerpiece of it, it's been a very real and very um, immediate experience for us. In, in terms of the uh, in terms of the sort of the social impact, if that was your question, Scott. It's what, been, uh, have there been any protests in your neighborhood? Yeah, that's been the to, other people have been finding. In, in terms specifically of COVID, the, 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 the process, the person, no. No, I, related to the George Floyd. And, oh, okay, I wonder where you were going. In, in terms of that, I mean, not in the, in the immediacy of our neighborhood. Uh, there were at some points uh, some sense that it, it would be somewhere that the, that the protests would extend to that never fully materialized. Um, but you can see a more sort of 
passive opinion sharing um, is expressed everywhere, particularly within this neighborhood in terms of its commitment to uh, to the agenda. Mm. Signs in Julian, your same question to you. Yeah, I'm, I'm coming to you from uh, Center City, um, very near the Art Museum. Um, I live fairly close by to the Penn Museum, which is right by the, the sort of the central University of Pennsylvania hospital system, which of course has played a, a very, very significant role um, in treating uh, COVID patients. I believe the first patient in the, in the Philadelphia area uh, came to be treated there. Um, you know, obviously they were extremely nervous about being overrun. Um, it, it is a rather a spectacular health system and that hasn't materialized. Um, but, you know, one of, the, one of the incredibly difficult things that we're all dealing with is, is you know, how do you, how do you plan for the, for the, you know, unplannable? Um, you know, being a museum that's been around for 130 odd years, the first thing we did was like, well, what did we do in 1919? Um, and, um, you know, we had some very interesting lessons there about uh, social distancing or lack thereof in Philadelphia and what that actually led to. When it comes to the, when it comes to the, the protests, um, uh, we, are, we, we live right by the Art Museum, which, of course, was, was ground zero for the protests a few Saturdays ago. And um, uh, they were amazing to see those protests there, see the, the unity uh, that, that was sort of so much in evidence. Well, Julia, you anticipated my first question, which is that both of you have been leading institutions long-standing in Philadelphia. Both institutions actually, as you say, were around when the 1919-1918-1919 pandemic existed. Um, neither of you were around then. So I'm curious to know individually, Julian, I'll start with you. Anything in your in your background or, or training prepare you for something like this, preparing a museum uh, to go into lockdown and deal with this kind of unfolding day-by-day -day uncertainty? Um, I, mean, I guess the short answer is no. Um, <laughs> but but the, the, the museum is part of a, an annual exercise that looks at a catastrophe on campus. So that could be, you know, a, a train carrying chemical waste overturning right in front of the museum and we've gone through you know flooding every scenario you can think of but this one um so you know we're we're starting afresh as the as, as, as same as everybody else but that sort of disaster planning does give you a sequence of events to start thinking about um and so while we haven't had uh you know direct experience of an outbreak like this I mean, we have been thinking about uh, process and response. Like, how do you evacuate, um, you know, a building? How do you repopulate a building? Um, how do you look for the series of events that could enable you to do that in an, in an orderly way? Um, and, of course, completely exacerbated by uh, something that changes almost every day. I mean, I think we'll all agree that with the... You know, the last week we we thought we were on a certain trajectory, and um, we're not. So, right, Scott, I wanted to ask you kind of the same question. What's been the biggest challenge from your perspective with the academy on the in the lockdown situation? These past four weeks, I've been speaking with scientists, educators, people in and around the academy as part of this great series of discussions. But I was sort of really eager to talk to you and get it from your from your vantage point what it means to really shut down a place that doesn't do that uh, i mean i think i think it depends on the perspective you're seeing it from i mean for me what i think was really interesting at the start and i recall this fairly vividly was there seemed to be a sense when we first recognized that uh, this was a, a thing that it was coming, that it couldn't be avoided, that it was materializing in Philadelphia, that the need to work from home was happening. It was non-negotiable. The sense that it all happened pretty hard on each other's heels, that 
this wasn't somehow going to be a week or two weeks of, of, of uh, sort of, you know, keeping one's head down, but that we were on for a much longer run. As that sort of, I remember that vividly, uh, all sort of pressing across us one sort of, one thing after another. And I remember at that time, conversation, certainly not between Julian and I, but there was sort of, you were picking up discussions and threads at other institutions that seemed to be pretty preoccupied with how we keep going, how we keep doing work, how we keep people, uh, staff engaged. And um, that, that wasn't, I mean, June and I know each other very well and, and we spoke to each other pretty quickly and shared our view, which was, frankly, our number one priority at the time was looking after our colleagues. You know, that's your principal role as a CEO is to look after and support your staff and frankly notions of you know somehow thinking everyone's going to be working from nine to five and how we're physically going to do this that and the other mm. you know they are very they're not even secondary to that initial uh demand desire to just make sure everybody's okay to make sure everybody is doing well because it was just it was just one wave after another after another. And I remember vividly midway through the first week of just taking a breath and thinking, you know, wow, what, what just happened? And so for me, the big thing was not that so much the process we too, as Julian articulated, had and any good museum will have processes in place for that sort of physical management. Um, it was the emotional nurturing, caring, watering that not so much took me by surprise, but was was the, really the focus, certainly my attention, and I don't want to speak for June, but it was just, just making sure people were okay. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, I want to come to this, um, this sort of set of challenges of running a big cultural institution from a distance and sort of question to you, Julian, I mean, what Scott's describing this sort of first moment of just realization that we are going to move into some uncertainty, some lockdown, people are not going to be back in the museum for some time and then to figure out the tasks. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that from the perspective of what it meant in the Penn Museum is, I mean, you, as well as the Academy, you have research going on, you have collections to maintain, you have ongoing research. I mean, it's a multifaceted institution. Walk us through a little bit of that sort of process of like, wow, now we've got to move it into remote phase. Right. Well, I, I think we had about three weeks where we realized something fairly major was about to happen, and that would involve working remotely. For some aspects of what a museum's mission is, um, you can do that uh, uh, quite well. Um, I mean, you know, when it comes to faculty curators, they often have a a, you know, a, a, their own research materials are at home, and so much of that is done online anyway, that that was fairly straightforward. But for other parts of the museum's mission, to like, you know, like conserving objects, looking after the collections, that was actually far more challenging. So initially, everybody had, you know, enough work that they could do. And I think everybody was surprised at how quickly we adapted to Zoom and to Blue Jeans and it was sort of almost a pleasant surprise and sort of, well, we're probably going to be doing a lot more of this in the future. And, you know, why did I spend all that money to go here for a conference when I can do it like that? But, I mean, the next, the next thing you're, you're battling with is what's happening in the, the cultural firmament around you. And what we saw was, you know, and this didn't affect Scott and I so much because, you know, we're, we're, we're embedded in large research institutions. But the standalone museums... Um, you know, very quickly felt, uh, you know, the impact of what happens when your revenue streams are just cut dead. Um, and, you know, some of them reacted very quickly with huge layoffs, which in turn uh, led to enormous anxiety across, you know, institutions across the country, across the world, really. Um, and then sort of you, there was a question of like, you know, you know, um, you know, making your staff feel at ease that we were working through this, that we were doing everything, and, and we are continuing to do everything we can um, to look after their welfare. 
And then, you know, once you're getting through that, the process of, well, how do you reopen? What will that reopening look like? How many different scenarios can we actually work through to have at our disposal so we can switch in an instant as circumstances change? And I, that's really where I think many of our institutions are, are right now, or at least they were till the last week. I mean, I think what you will see in July is a cautious reopening, um, which in many ways is as much experimental and sort of research oriented. How is this going to work? Um, obviously, there are all these different tiers of, of guidance you have to go through. There, you know, there's the state, there's the city, there's the, there's the institution that you work for and the campus that you're on. And so balancing all of those uh, is, is difficult. And particularly when you're, um, you know, you're a director of a museum on a campus like we are, um, because we are very different from what else is going on on campus. Um, I mean, I think one of the things that's been particularly difficult is, you know, the Penn Museum is this huge research museum with field projects all over the world. And all of those came to a shuddering halt this summer. And, you know, it's, it's I mean, these, these are people's lives. Um, and, um, you know, museums and academia, I mean, these are, these are not professions, they're, they're vocations. I mean, people are deeply intermeshed with their jobs. And so it's, de it's dealing with that too. Scott, I want to stick with this, this theme and sort of get your take on it from the perspective of the academy. And you knew that the sort of ordinary daily business was going to come to a stop, but you had to make some decisions about what to do next in terms of public outreach or education and begin to do some transformations. How did you approach that? What kind of things did the academy offer? Um, historically, it was a good question. I mean, again, like Julian, it was, it was about the same. Two, three weeks before we eventually moved off site. That was about the time frame we had to plan. Um, for us, we have historically, the Academy, spent a lot of time, a lot of energy focused on on-site programming. That has been the focus of our energies. And anybody who wants to look up our website or speak to anybody who works at the Academy, um, you, you will see immediately that we are um, ill-prepared, shall we say, uh, to, to, to deliver digital offerings. The website is antiquated. We're renewing it at the moment. Our investment historically has really been focused on the on-site experience. What that meant was uh, when the moment came, we didn't have content in our inside pocket that would meant that we were able to just pivot like that. Uh, you know, we've got some fellow institutions up and down the parkway. And if you look particularly, for example, at the, our colleagues at the Barnes, where they've been making some significant investments over the last three or four years, in their digital offerings, um, you know, their, 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 the quality of this, the stuff that they have on hand and their ability to pivot was phenomenal. Um, and it's been the same for many institutions. For us, we came from a standing style with antiquated infrastructure and our attention hadn't been focused elsewhere for a number of reasons. All that being said, we still did, I mean, it was a real testament, particularly to, you know, to all of our staff, really, but particularly to our programming learning staff their ability to simply scrape together the content that we had, package it, sort of, um, uh, uh, and deliver it in ways that were genuinely of value uh, to the community was, ex was extraordinary. So for us, it was an exercise in sort of rapid prototyping, kind of design thinking, an exercise, frankly, in entrepreneurialism. Um, and they did it absolutely brilliantly. And... One of the interesting things about the pandemic, about any crisis, and, and you would know more about this, Scott, than anybody else on earth, I'm sure, is that, it, that in a crisis, your, your institution, you as an individual, your colleagues, you extend into areas, you flex muscles you didn't even know you had, you, you draw on skills that you didn't know you possessed. And, and for us, a legacy institution of 200 years, which most, by common consent, many of my colleagues would see as having done things in a very particular way over a very long period of time. That's a fairly crude um, uh, simplification, but by and large, it's somewhat true. Our ability to just turn on a dime 
And to be able to create content that was powerful, that's usable, that's been used, that is shared, that has been uh, valued by particularly the children within the city, um, made me incredibly proud. Um, and it gave me real hope for us as an institution, not just to be able to power through this pandemic, but actually grow and reposition and come out stronger at the other end. And if anything, that's been a really fascinating and heartening takeaway for me because I, I genuinely believe that's the case. I think that's been, to me, that's just really interesting and in talking to some of your staff, Scott, they, they reflected that as well. It, um, there's a lot of school buses that roll up in front of the academy in the springtime. And Julian, I, I don't know if the same is true at the Penn Museum, but I have to imagine it is. Um, and then to all of a sudden just sort of reimagine the education mi mission going to the students. I mean, as a professor, our faculty did a great job. And in two weeks time, they got their in-class classes turned into online deliverables. Um, but we already had the classes in the main. I didn't have a museum of artifacts to somehow create an online experience for. I had material I'd already been, I speak for myself, been teaching for years. I don't know, Julian, what was your approach there at the Penn Museum? Were you able to, to turn well, the, it in that way that, yeah. that Scott described? It was, it was absolutely awe-inspiring how quickly they just shifted um, to, to online. Um, now, I think what really helped us is we have a, a distance learning program uh, that's very well developed. And so there are individuals in the museum who already knew how to do that and could basically teach their colleagues how to do that. And so, I mean, programming had to, had to shift. So we have a, a, a program called the, the Daily Dig that was used to be taught in the museum where every day there would be um, you know, a teacher, a, a curator, a staff member who talk about one object for 15 minutes. They still do that, but they now do it for three minutes every single day online. And the real challenge now is, you know, you know, you know, like Scott, we have you know school buses lined up outside that, like outside that building. And what we actually know is this fall, we are going to have to be teaching remotely um, to the K-12 school visits in Philadelphia, and so. This summer has allowed us to hone those skills of how to do it. Um, I think it involves a certain sort of loosening of production values because, you know, these things are now being shot on iPhones um, in somebody's house. I mean, people are making their own green screens <laughs> in their home. Um, but, sure. it's, it's, but, you know, maybe there's been a trajectory towards that for years, you know, and, uh, mm -hmm. and so it's all, it's all been very useful in the circumstance that we will now find ourselves in. Hmm. That, that rough and ready accommodation of distance. I think you're right, Julian. Everybody's turned, whatever room they designate in their house has now become a, a de facto TV studio. And I don't think anybody's lost any sleep over it. Hmm. No, in fact, I, I mean, I would uh, talk to that. I, today we had um, a, 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 a member of, of the academy um she wrote in and she wanted to thank us for one of the programs that we do and it was really for her son who's a, a three-year-old boy and he uh was hi big up to charlie hi charlie if you're watching he um he did a little video and his mum sent it in i'm sure it was shot on an iphone i think his uncle bill did the soundtrack Charlie allegedly did with all the, the production, the editing, and the rest of it. I suspect he had a hand from his mom and dad. But Charlie was the star of the show, a three-minute magnum opus in which he introduced us to a truly astounding array of dinosaurs, all of them pronounced perfectly, all of them described with great <laughs> eloquence and passion. The point I'm making here is, in three minutes, he just, in one minute, in 10 seconds, he had me. It's been a really interesting corrective mm. because that content that Julie talked about, that move towards rapid, authentic, from the heart, shared communication has been, I think, allowed to shine. And you know what? The drop in production values did not matter a whit. And it was best evidence, I think, in a lot of programs that many of our institutions have done, which has been around member engagement. You want to make sure that you're caring, not just for your staff, but as well for all those people that support you year in, year out, your members and your donors. For us and for our team, 
the move towards engaging them, offering them great content, albeit stuff that was frankly, you know, production values as ropey as you'd like, was vitally important. And we have seen that, I don't know what Julie's experience has been in this respect, but we have seen that just take off our ability. We were really worried at the start of this. What does it mean for us as an institution that's trying to move away from transactional relationships with people, come in, see the galleries, leave, pay us X, do Y, into a community, the development of community. As much as anything, we were worried that that would take as much a battery as our revenue lines. Um, but it hasn't, quite the opposite. We felt that we've been able to forge deeper, stronger, and, and wider relationships with more people over the last three or four months than we could possibly have imagined doing when the museum was open. Um, and it's all been done with some of the sort of slightly questionable production values that Julian talked about, because it's been from the heart and it's been about our institution. people you're listening to COVID calls we're talking today about museums and the changes going on in museums in the midst of the pandemic with Scott Cooper and Julian Siggers so there is I'd be remiss if I didn't ask because um, people wanted me to ask this there is a sort of a night at the museum quality to this in which we think about what's going on in the mostly empty spaces that are usually teeming with people maintaining the collection, doing the research and whatnot. And so I'm just sort of curious, and maybe each of you could tell us about an artifact or something going on at the museum that you that you worried about in this time or that you thought this really needs a lot more attention than it's getting. You both oversee enormous collections, very complicated collections. Um, I, Scott, let me start with you. I mean, something at the Academy that at this moment, you're even in the back of your mind, you're thinking somebody needs to check in on this. <laughs> I do, I do, that, that list is a very long one, I can tell you. Um, you know, the Academy. The academy <laughs> this is the nightmare list. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I want to be too transparent on this front, but there is. Um, yeah, we're, we're always. You know, it's a, it's a, it's an aging building, and uh, your whilst we don't have too many collections out front. You know, our collections out back needs constant monitoring. It's an aging building. With an aging building, anything has the capacity to go wrong at any moment. And if you, we have got an extraordinary facilities team, amazing collection managers, um, and all of them are live monitoring that space all the time, every day, under normal circumstances. For the last three months, that's not been possible. We have, as you would expect, have some de minimis processes involved. We know where there might be a risk of a leak, risk of a leak. We know where there might be a risk of a refrigeration failure. Um, so those are the things that we're ch checking in on constantly. But what keeps me awake is is what happens, you know, in the crucial twelve hours where that may not be the case. We have a security presence. We have processes that allow us to check in that will have a reduced um, impact in that respect. Mm. But um, there is, you know, the, the capacity in many ways for something to go wrong is. Is tightly managed, but still infinite. So we have many of the, the, you know, similar issues, and having an old building and old means, frankly, unpredictable. Um, so you, you, you don't know when a pipe will burst. We've we've obviously had security there um, all the way through, and I and they've done an amazing job. And but it's a very lonely one, and so the storage areas are, are, are inspected very regularly. Conservation comes in um, at regular intervals as well. We've actually started repopulating various parts of the museum already, particularly the, the labs where much of the research and conservation goes on. And there are also um, places where you can social distance. But you know, an inordinate amount of work had to go into what's the cleaning protocol going to be. Uh, you know, you know, who's going to use the elevators? Which elevator? What's the path? That they will take to stay safe, which is, of course, um, you know, always our prime concern. I, mean, I I have been going into the museum about once a week um, mm -hmm. to to do my own sort of walkthrough, and I have to admit, it is it, it, it's very unnerving. 
Yes. To walk through these galleries. Um, we, you know, we, we reopened a, a huge renovation of the museum in November. And as you walk in to the museum, uh, the first thing you see is the, the largest Egyptian sphinx in the Western Hemisphere, which belongs long to Ramses II. And, you know, he, he was, you know, he was lit in the most masterful way for, for reopening it. But now, of course, there is this sort of dim, backlit, monolithic figure there. And I posted a picture on social media saying, you know, how this very iconic Sphinx is, is, is awaiting our return. And then somebody very sensibly pointed out, like, he's good for waiting for centuries. Like... <laughs> This is no. He's good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Even millennia, <laughs> you yeah. can wait it out. Yeah, yellow phase, green phase. It's not yeah. really a concern. Right. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both for sharing. That's that's that will totally satisfy the people who wanted to sort of know what it's like in these in these museums in that in that time. And it must be unnerving to be in there uh, in that in that way. But also, as you said, Scott, both of you said. Um, it's really kind of pedestrian stuff in some sense, like just worrying about refrigeration, worrying about HVAC and these vast old complexes that have these really um, irreplaceable collections. I wanted to, to talk about reopening in a couple of different ways. Um, one, Scott, to come back to you, and, and you're talking about the speed and the creativity with which your team there transforms forms the educational capacity um is there any going back i mean how do you how do you take this time then and map it going forward and i don't expect you to have a finished answer to that but how are you thinking about about that you I mean you said something really interesting i thought about how you had already been brainstorming about changing the nature of people's interaction with the museum not a transaction come see a dinosaur come see a thing and leave but to be more of a relationship. Can you, I'm gonna draw you out a little bit more on that now that, because we will reopen at some point. It could be this fall temporarily and then closed again and reopen, whatever, we'll get there. What are you learning now that you're gonna apply going forward? It's a great question. I think that, what I, I mean, we try, okay, so with limited resources as any institution has, we've certainly got to plan. We try to plan. Hopefully, we have a strategic plan as you would expect. What's been really interesting is the way that our strategic approach to what we were trying to achieve over the next five years, that approach has not changed. It's not changed one little bit. That's a testament, I think, to the amount of energy and ideas and the amount of sort of forward look we invested at that point a year and a half ago into thinking the type of more nimble, entrepreneurial, creative, participatory, community-focused research institution we want to create. What COVID completely turned around was the prioritization. What we're going to do first and what, you know, what, what order are we going to do this stuff in? So when we, what do we take with us um, when we go back? You know, first and foremost, there is, there is not going to be, it's extremely unlikely there's going to be a vaccine that's going to be circulated before really spring of next year. I think to all intents and purposes, we're looking at 12 months from now between a fully vaccinated or as fully vaccinated as can be expected uh, population allows us to return to pre-COVID normality. So it's going to be a quiet institution. Um, that provides you with certain opportunities. It provides you with opportunities to be very much more intimate and thoughtful and engaging if you're having to, to, to commune on site. But what it also does for us is gives us two other opportunities. One, to really begin to focus on our digital engagement piece and fast track that based on the learnings of the last three months. And secondly, to really begin to go out of our walls, in particular, looking at ways that we can really offer the sort of substantive support that other of our colleagues, and I certainly know Julie, Julie's institution, and been doing in support of public schools uh, across Philadelphia for a very long time. We do a lot of it, particularly through our Center for STEAM Equity, 
Um, we want to look at how we grow that. How do we grow these learning programs, particularly based in schools that just aren't going to be able to come to us? Um, we need to go to them. We have to do it. We committed to doing it. And to some extent, we're doing it before COVID. We have to be doubling down, tripling down on that and really pushing it forward um, as we return in whenever it's going to be at the end of next month. So for us, it's not just, it's not been abandoning this and going over there. It's been reprioritizing and redirecting investment. And I would, I would agree with everything Scott said, but I'd add one more thing. Is when we reopen, um, I think a question that we have to have is like, who needs us the most mm. right now? I mean, obviously the K-12 is very much front and center, but I know that we and many museums are thinking about our most immediate local community and how can we be of service to them? Um, and I, that may well be a, a, a priority for us. It's like, how can we engage with them who we've all been through this together? And what's more, it's not going to be, and I think we're all very clear on this now, a unilinear narrative. It's going to have stops and starts. We're going to go back or we'll go forward. Hopefully there'll be a vaccine. And so how can we be, how can we maintain that versatility that we've been managing to enhance throughout this period, probably for the next year? Um, you know, there, there, there are more sort of serious long-term questions. Uh, I mean, you mentioned, um, Scott, earlier that, you know, the, the impact of this on tourism is going to be really profound, um, particularly in cities like New York, to a lesser extent, Philadelphia, but it will affect Philadelphia, and certainly will Chicago. Um, this may be a, you know, a, a three-year arc uh, before we get back to normal. And so, how do we adapt to that? Um, and anybody that tells you have an answer doesn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, I think. Well, um, maybe they don't, but I want to hear from Scott. Go ahead, because I think that, you know, this. This problem of, I mean, it's most, it is a strength for Philadelphia and for Chicago and, and New York. The cultural aspect is what drives a lot of the tourism in the, in the cities. But as you pointed out, there's some massive uncertainty and enormous problems, as I can see it, in communication between institutions, higher education, museums, city and state. Um, I don't know, Scott, what are you, how are you going to, how are you thinking about that problem? As Julian just said, a three-year problem, maybe. That's not just one institution, but it's it's a city problem. It's a cultural sector problem. Right. It is a cultural sector problem, and it's it, it's. I think for a long time it is an open secret. The point, you know, the, the issue that Philadelphia is culturally rich, but arguably culturally overbuilt. Now, there's maybe a counter argument that would say, "Well, how can you possibly be culturally overbuilt?" I think if you sort of analyze it purely through the prism of finance, there is, there is an argument to say that we are. The degree to which we have visitation and particularly foundational and philanthropic support to be able to sustain as many institutions as we have right now across the city has to be up for conversation, right? This is not a new idea. This has been rehearsed within this set city for decades. We have to, have to get around the table and have a serious conversation around what a more consolidated, healthy, if nothing else, strategically coordinated approach to um, engaging our communities looks like. I think for too long, you know, there are what, five, five, Six science institutions within Philadelphia alone. You've got the you've got um, uh, APS, you've got the Wagner, you've got Mutter, you've got the Franklin, you've got us, you've got the Science History Institute. There is so much overlap between those programs that a conversation surely is ready to be had about a coordinated and thoughtful approach to how we deliver those, rather than constantly, in a way, competing 
for a pie that is getting smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller every single year. Is there scope for even wider, more substantive consolidation? Probably. And it might happen unavoidably. I don't know. But I think that we have to be opening up that, that sort of debate. We have to. It's another level of stress and tension that maybe a lot of people hadn't really thought of, you know, the kind of sorting that may be happening. And, and you both gave a clue, I think, when you talked about, I think, Julian, you mentioned all of the people who were laid off, maybe not at your two institutions, but in the cultural sector and how quickly that happened. And, and it shows, you know, maybe the tenuous uh, nature of, of some of this economy. I want to I want to stick with this theme and and take it to the next level, which is um, this disaster is now a disaster of many parts. It's a public health disaster, but it's also a disaster that has really exposed inequality in America and globally, but in America. And then the murder of George Floyd, for anybody who hadn't picked up yet on the inequalities that've been exposed, there it is. Um, and I and I wonder because we're having this conversation on the campus, and I question for both of you as you're rethinking the role of a museum in this moment how are you listening what are you hearing how are you thinking about museum as a site of social justice repair conversation engagement it's a vast set of issues but somehow as I think about it, you know, we came into this thinking about a pandemic and we come out the other side thinking about inequality in America. You yeah. can't talk about one without the other anymore. Julian, where, where are you on this? Well, I mean, this really goes to the very heart of what our museum is trying to do, which is, is to tell the human story, which is, a, you know, is a story of, of injustice and inequality. But what this the circumstance has done is it is basically you know draw the curtains back of of everything um and so essentially you know, with a museum like ours it's had a, a really profound effect on just like you know what we should prioritize what stories should we tell um you know how do you rethink the museum in the context of what we've all just seen and we're in the we're in the like the literally the opening paragraph of how this is going to affect um, museums and institutions. I mean, I think certainly from from the, from our from our staff, they're call, calling for a very deep rethink of of you know of of you know how we operate, what we prioritize, how our governance is set up. Um, so this is you know it's going to be a, a really profound. Rethink and shake up, and I find it. I find it quite invigorating. Um, again, uh, you know, if, you, if you're uncomfortable, that's a good thing, um, because it is such a profound change. Um, but I, I, you know, I don't have the, have any answers. But I just know that it is now gone on to the front burner of everything that we do. Scott, can I get your your sense of that? Thank you. Yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I think that the you know, we, it's, it's always been, it's been something that, that that notion, that the, the inclusion, diversity, equity, and access has been something that I have been a focal point for, for our institution for the last two years since I came on board. Putting that central to everything that we do has been vital to me. Some of that is an experience potentially as well, a similar one for Julian. You know, I came from Canada. I worked in the Middle East before that. My sort of museological sensibilities have been cast, um, firstly, in a, in, a, in a country of a, in, a, in the Middle East, but where we had to, I had to create a museum of slavery, an incredibly sensitive subject. Moving then on to, the, to, to, to Canada, where we were, I was operating in a sort of a post um, to the Reconciliation Commission uh, environment, where we were really beginning to explore how you empower nothing about us without us. How do we ensure that we are creating an institution where we are not speaking on behalf of others? There is no ownership. You are facilitating voices and genuine inclusion. How, that has been something that's walked, walked, born into my DNA over the last 15 years. What I found with my own, with, with, when I came to the academy is 
trying to put that front and center was something, there wasn't resistance per se, but it was a sense that it was somebody else's kind of job to do. Right. That we're kind of a science institution, we get it, you know, we're, we're kind of inclusive, we're liberal, we're educated, this is, we got, we got, this is fine. Right. What I've really seen over the last month is how that has just completely changed. The sense of shared responsibility and ownership uh, has been phenomenal. Conversations I was trying to have three months ago are being conducted now in a completely different environment. And with that, so are expectations and accountability. Um, I've been very keen now to begin to reimagine, and Scott, you and I have been having this conversation, begin to reimagine how we talk about ourselves, the legacy of this natural history museum in the Americas, what has been our involvement in a very complex American history? How do we decolonize our institution? I'd be very keen to begin to really advance that. Um, but expectations are now different, and the language, even, you know, even I, that I have used over the last week with colleagues um, where I said, yeah, we're going to do this and we're going to do that, that is not an acceptable approach anymore. Um, I've used it as a shorthand, but I have a staff and colleagues now that are not only moved from a position, not so much of indifference, but, but to a position of a total engagement, but also quite rightly and very welcome, a position of co-ownership, co-authority. Say, thank you, Scott, that's great you're gonna do that. We are gonna do that. We are coming forward with this. Um, and I think that's been just, the, the change has been phenomenal, been incredibly invigorating and energizing. Um, but, you know, I think that the way that it's already rewired the academy, I think other institutions has been just dramatic and irreversible. Yeah, I want to remind people you're listening to COVID calls from talking to Scott Cooper and Julian Siggers. I want to stay on this and make the question even harder um, if possible. Um, and I really appreciate your, this discussion. Um, but, you know, for an, for an ordinary institution, um, taking a hard look at this moment, the way the institution is organized, um, the, the way it's, uh, governance works, the many things, you know, to take a, a, a static photograph of any institution in a moment, it's going to change. Right. But the drawing card for both of your institutions, one of the major ones, is its historical longevity and the depth of its collections. But those collections provide a continuity in time that's, from a research perspective, enormously important and valuable culturally. But Scott, this is where you were just going a minute ago, use the word decolonize the collections, the conditions under which collections are made take us back into a world that is deeply problematic to us and we're learning more and more about it. It's not some distant place. Colonial, the colonial West, the colonizing of the American West, I think to many people might've seemed quite distant and now they're reading stories about uh, inequalities of COVID-19 pandemic on the Navajo reservations. And all of a sudden the New York Times is full of op-eds about where that, how that land was taken. I mean, if you just read the paper in the last three months, you're getting a history of global colonization and injustice. And where, by the way, are the material artifacts of that? Well, I'd like to come visit your museum and we can see. That's why I said it's a hard question. Um, but I, I, again, I want to, I want to think with you about this, Julian, to you first, like, how are you, how do you deal with the artifacts in this context? Well, I think the first thing you have to do is to be completely transparent because whether we like it or not, although, you know, America is, you know, is built on a story of settler colonialism, um, but it was also complicit in the acquisition of objects from many other imperial powers. And so with our museum, I mean, we have written into that story. And so we have chosen to start with um, the, our African collection, which opened again in November. And, and that's our first attempt at the process of decolonization, because what it does is it presents these facts 
completely transparently, um, particularly when it comes to the objects from the kingdom of Benin, uh, where we say, you know, these objects were looted by the British Expeditionary Force. This is how they came onto the art market. Here's a letter from the museum director in 1915, where he's negotiating with a dealer in, in London. And so what that gallery is, is it's the beginning of a conversation of on many levels, like how do we actually have honest conversations about the origins of these collections? How are they used also in research? Because as you said, they have an invaluable role to play in our present. Um, but also, you know, what are we going to do about some of these injustices? And this will lead up to everything and in, including, you know, um, repatriation of some objects which were demonstrably looted. Mm -hmm. Now, as an archaeology museum, the biggest existential threat we have in the present is global looting. And so we also have to acknowledge, you know, instance of looting from the past. But it's, you know, it's an incredibly complicated question because, you know, um, Takufu Zubiri, who is the chief curator of this collection, also brings up this very valid point, is that, you know, there is a, this is um, African-American community in the States who are intrinsically linked with the narratives that these collections represent. Sometimes, you know, directly in that the bronze that was used to, um, uh, you know, be melted into those bean bronzes were actually exchanged for slaves that are now here in the U.S. And so these are really complicated stories. Um, and these Africa galleries, are the, that was the first question my staff said. This is a great start. Um, why aren't you doing this in the Mesoamerican galleries, you know, in the Near Eastern galleries and other galleries? Um, and, and my answer to that is, well, you have to start somewhere. Um, but right. I think, uh, you know, the current events have actually uh, really turned up the heat on the need to do this um, in, in a far more focused and immediate way. Scott, I don't know if you wanted to add anything to that. Yeah, I mean, it's, I it's, what uh, I was going to say is it, 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 in a sense, to me, it adds a reason why people will come to, will come to the museum. Right. It's, a whole, it's a whole additional layer hmm. of why you would come, the way I view it. And artifact has to go away. The, the missing artifact suddenly becomes a reason for people who might have gone to one type of a museum in the past to come to your museum now. That's how I'm thinking of it, but I don't have to manage it. Uh, you have to manage it. Scott, I don't know. What, what are you? Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we, we are, uh, you know, we're, we're a 200-year-old institution. Um, what that means is we have one of the finest collections of natural history in the world, and we have one of the most significant histories of collecting anywhere in the world. Um, that is a remarkable repository. That is, um, that is endless opportunity to initiate conversations in any number of directions. I think for a very long time, Science institutions, particularly natural history museums, have tended to want to focus their interpretation, their conversation starters on the very sort of specifics of this bird and that snail, and this is the wonder of nature. And that is the stuff of life for us, of course. But there are two other amazing, you know, missing dimensions to that. It's not just about the richness and the texture of natural science. It is the issues around natural science. And those issues are incredibly complex and multi-dimensioned and intersect utterly with issues of environmental justice, for example. The second element mm -hmm. is that historical arc. 200 years of collecting that effectively kicked off the Lewis and Clark, which was the very definition of a colonial expedition, a colonial enterprise. That is an amazing entry point into offering perfectly legitimately and entirely on mission a conversation into our national sense of self. Um, we can explore legitimately that conversation as well as anybody else. Um, and we intend to. We have to, as an institution, look at what it means to have the collections of, of Drinker Cope 
and at the same time understand what it means to be so closely associated with somebody whose views on race were abhorrent then, still more abhorrent now. What does that mean? How do we explore that? How do we unpack that? So for me, our role as a museum, it doesn't need to be tightly circumscribed by saying, well, no, we just collect these things. It can be, it can be infinitely, it has to be infinitely more than that. We're almost up on time. Thank you for that. Um, I want to get one more quick question in and maybe end on this on this note, and it maybe ties some of the things we've been talking about together. Um, how do you, just building on what we were just talking about, people are looking for things to cope with now and things to heal with. I mean, we are, we are at a point literally of, of illness in the body and in the body, in the, in the civic body. Can you point to to some evidence that you have from the past or something that's on your mind right now about the way museums can, can be that, how museums can offer something right now for people to cope with. I almost think of, of times in my life when I, I used to live in New York and when I didn't, when I was down, I'd go to an art museum. I mean, it literally just changes the way instantly re to me, rewires the, the brain. You leave with something you didn't come in with. I always found that to be powerful. And I, I I guess I'd like to get your your sense of it as we're as we're closing out. Well, you know, in the in the immediate future, where we're you know, dealing with countries around the world that have basically been inside for the last hundred days, trying to find a way to negotiate their current circumstance. I mean, to your point, Scott, museums are places of of, of wonder and uplift. And when people feel comfortable um, to experience them, I mean, they, they can be enormously healing places. They were built to be that. I mean, they weren't just built to be places of enlightenment and education, but of, 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 of comfort and wonder and, uh, you know, just beauty. And perhaps that's what we can offer in the very, very short term. I mean, there are also places where we the conversations that have, 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 have come out of all of these interrelated experiences that we've had. I mean, to me, the museum is an actual forum for that place as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Scott, the last word to you, my friend. Yeah, I, I, um, look, I think I mentioned earlier on, I was privileged enough to be uh, the, the director of, a, of um, the first museum of slavery in the Islamic world. And uh, it is, I was based out in Qatar, I lived there for four years. My boss was uh, Her Highness Sheikh Moza bin Nasser al-Misnet, who is the uh, middlewife of the then Emir, um, tough boss. And it was her vision that we, that, that museum would be created. Um, it was uh, an incredibly challenging subject because the subject itself is fundamentally taboo, in, in, in particularly in, in Qatar, which is a, a very conservative Islamic society. Um, and by, uh, to cut a very long story short, by facilitating conversations in the, from, from Qataris around that subject, we managed to pull together, I think, a museum of genuinely transformative consequence because that subject was, was, was simply not discussed anywhere ever within the community. It was viewed by Her Highness as a subject of uh, that it had to be addressed, that it was a, a, a wound in the heart of their society. And until it was exposed, how could it possibly be healed? My job was to facilitate Cottery colleagues to be able to create that. We did that. And the, the effect was, 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 I believe, you know, genuinely um, in, impactful um, in ways that none of my colleagues really envisaged. We were genuinely worried. Why did it work so well? Because museums are trusted spaces where even subjects as difficult and deeply challenging as that topic um, 
in a very conservative community can be debated. They are safe spaces where conversations can be had, and that is where culture starts and ends, is in conversation. And, and that's where museums um, are at their best. You've been listening to COVID Calls. Tomorrow I'll be talking with Alice Fothergill and Lori Peak, the co-authors of the tremendous work, The Children of Katrina. They did a longitudinal study of children coming out of Hurricane Katrina, and they're going to be talking about their new work tomorrow about children and COVID-19. Please do join me for that at 5 o'clock. Scott Cooper and Julian Siggers, this has been a great hour. Thank you so much for making time for this discussion today. Stay healthy, everyone. COVID Calls is on every day at 5 o'clock, every weekday at 5 o'clock. Bye, everybody. Bye.